Okay. You all right? Yes, you are doing the reading in a couple of minutes. Thank you. So, um, back to John's Gospel. We're walking through the extraordinary Gospel of John. Um, We're up to chapter 11, which is the midpoint. Um, But just before we plunge back in after the Christmas break, we've been doing this since about April 2019. Let me give us a quick crash course in John's Gospel, just to orientate us again. So when Jesus walked the earth, he had a best friend. A lot of evidence in the the Gospels to suggest that he had one disciple in particular who was just especially close to his heart, personally. And that guy was John. And uh, John was a close-up eyewitness to Jesus' entire ministry. And no one knew Jesus better than John. Well, years later, after Jesus had left, John sat down to write about his best friend. And like the other eyewitnesses whose accounts we also have, John was willing to suffer any penalty, including torture and death, for the sake of getting out what he just knew to be the truth about his best friend, Jesus. And we know many other eyewitnesses did suffer those things. In John's case, the authorities tried to shut him up by incarcerating him in a labor camp on an island, the island of Patmos. You can read about that later in the Bible. But the frantic cover-up didn't work. Nothing could stop the truth getting out. And one of the accounts we have today of that truth is John's Gospel. A couple of features about John, literary features, include that he uses incredibly simple language. So just very, very deceptively basic vocab and syntax and grammar. And at the same time, John's Gospel is one of the most philosophically profound books in the whole Bible. It's always one of the first books they they give you when you're learning Greek at seminary. But when you stop to look, because it's so easy linguistically, but when you stop past to look through the words, past the words, at the meanings of what John is saying, you kind of start to get vertigo. Um, Another feature would be that he doesn't always explain things step by step. So someone like Paul in the Bible, very linear, very tightly argued, forensic sort of um, assembling of ideas and connecting them to each other very clearly and methodically. John, not like that at all. John likes to circle around topics in a very fluid, sort of free-flowing way. Um, He'll say something, then he'll say something else, then he'll say something else, then he'll go back to the first thing, but approach the first thing from a different angle and approach it more deeply, and then do the same for the second thing, and then return to the third thing more deeply from another different angle, and go round in circles like that. And just one other feature of this gospel would be the intense, vicious, really nasty opposition that Jesus faced from the religious authorities, the Jews. Um, Jesus was a radical revolutionary. They didn't like it. They couldn't cope with it. And, And I think it's such a tragedy that following Jesus today has become so institutionalized. And the truth is, Jesus is for people who want more than just to go along with the crowd, uh, who, people who want to aim higher and who are up for an adventure and are ready to go against the flow. And so John's Gospel is an amazing piece of literature. It is an absolute masterpiece. And it's very moving in parts as well. There's, there's, um, there's a poem towards the beginning and there are other aspects that are very lyrical. And there are some heart-tugging moments in the narrative as well. It's just sometimes it bleeds this pathos. Very tender. It's an amazing book. And um, there are some literary, literary features. The structure of the book is very simple. First half, chapters 1 to 11, tells the story of Jesus' ministry on earth. And um, it's John's narrative is built around seven particular miracles that John has selected and the... Um, the different teaching that Jesus linked to each miracle. And each of the miracles progressively increases. 
from 1 to 7. And we're up to chapter 11, which is the seventh, which is the biggest and the climactic one, Lazarus. And we'll come to that in a few minutes. And then the second half, that's 1 to 11. The second half, chapters 12 to the end, is a long section of Jesus, mainly a long section of uh, teaching Jesus gave before he died. It's called the Farewell Discourse, him saying farewell to his disciples, all the teaching he gives them. And then it's the story of his death and resurrection. And the final thing I'll say about the the context, the the crash course in, in John, is his aim. Why did John write this? He states his aim very, very clearly at the very end of the gospel when he says in chapter 20, verse 31, quote, These things are written, why? That you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So whether you're sitting here right now and you've been a Jesus follower for over 50 years, and that is some of us, or whether you've been a Jesus follower only for a few weeks, and that is some of us, or whether you would not even call yourself a Jesus follower at all right now. The aim for all of us as we look at this book is to see Jesus' true identity more and more clearly. Because the better we see him for who he really is, the more he changes our lives, with eternal life being the bottom line. So there's a, just a quick, like I say, crash course to reorientate us in John's Gospel. Before I continue and we dive into today's passage and Claire comes up to read, are there any questions, anyone, on any of the above? Any literary features or, or the dating of it or the structure or the, um, anything else? People sort of got a vague grip, a bit of a handle on, on John's Gospel, how it's different from all the others. Okay, if you do, come grab me afterwards. But we'll have the reading in a second. Um, the question for the reading is, that won't do slides for me. Uh, neither will that. Pocket, someone's saying pocket, pocket. This one? There. Yes! All right, there we go. Boom. No. There we go. How many surprises can you count in this reading? I think there are some slap in the face surprises. More than one. See how many you can spot. And Claire, why don't you give us the reading? Thank you. And give us the page number as well, if you would. There you go. Okay, so today's reading is from um, John chapter 11, and um, it's verses 1 to 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, at the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Lovely. Thanks, Claire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. Lord, remove any spiritual blindness. Uh, Focus our minds if there are distractions. Lord, please set us free from those, at least for the next few minutes, so we can dwell with undivided minds and hearts on words that will change our lives. Lord, we, we pray that what we're about to hear and learn from you from, from this passage would transform 2020 for this church, for us as individuals, and for the sake of your glory. And we can even only speak to you now because of Jesus, and so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Hands up, who made a New Year's resolution? Hands up, who's already broken it? Um, I read a tweet recently that said, a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and goes out the other. <laughs> and, but I wonder what each of us is hoping for from 2020. Uh, for some of us, 2019 might have been very painful. And maybe you're hoping for some relief from that, some desperately needed change, whether it's change relationally or physically or financially or in some other way. And um, for others of us, you know, we're on the front foot. Life was going pretty well. Um, we're confident, pretty happy, and just more of the same, please, in 2020. We want to kick on. But the question that matters most isn't, what um, am I hoping for in 2020? The question that matters most is actually, what is God hoping for for me in 2020? And sometimes what God wants for me and what I want for me match up. And that's great when that happens. And sometimes the two don't match up. And when they don't, that can be tongue-gnawingly frustrating. But that's okay, because God knows better than we do what we need, what's good for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us more than we can imagine. And the proof of, of the fact he loves us is that he sent his only son to die for us. And the thing about being God is that if you're God, you always get what you want. It's the thing about being God. You're sovereign. And so if we learn from these verses in the coming minutes what God does want for us in 2020, and then we fight it in our lives, that is just going to be a recipe for frustration and setback. To use language the passage is going to use in a few minutes, we will stumble. And it's self-defeating because he is in charge. He really does know best. And he really, 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 really does love us. And So let's have a look what he wants for us, for me, and for you, for our church this coming year. Verse 1. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. By the way, that village exists to this day. And we know from verse 18, it's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Today it goes by the name Al-Azariah. Can you hear the the name Lazarus embedded in where that name derives from? Al-Azariah. And in fact... Here's a picture of it. 
uh, just a normal, real, modern-day Near Eastern village. My point being, this really happens, what we're reading. We've got people's names, place names, geography. We're reading factual history here that was verifiable by all of the contemporaneous readers. This isn't a myth or fairy tale. That's not how they're written. That's not what they sound like. Verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, slightly odd way by John the writer to identify Lazarus to us, isn't it? He's a belabors, it's a weird roundabout belabored way to identify who Lazarus was, to tell us all this stuff about his sister. Well, that's very deliberate by John. We'll be coming back to that at the end. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That is the first of just three insights this passage is teaching about what God wants for us in 2020. The first being this, his glory. Um, God wants glory to him to result from each of our lives and from this church. In other words, he wants us to be putting him on display and, and, and demonstrating his character and, and showing him off for the kind of God he really is. He wants to be glorified. But when we hear that, if you're anything like I used to be, your instinct might be to think, hmm, it's a little bit kind of vain of God. He's quite proud. I thought we're not meant to be proud in Christianity. He's kind of quite into himself in a way that maybe isn't that attractive. We're not meant to be. Um, the thing is, again, if you're God, in other words, the highest being in the universe, to put anyone or anything before you is wicked idolatry. We're called to put God first. God's not being a hypocrite. He's called to do exactly the same. He's, God is called to put God first. He has to because he's the highest being in the universe. Uh, pride is thinking too highly of yourself. But because God is infinitely powerful and infinitely beautiful, infinitely majestic, infinitely white, infinitely everything good, he, he cannot be proud. He cannot think too highly of himself in that sense, by definition, in that sinful way. So the Bible explains that, that God's glory is the highest value in the universe and the very reason for which he created the universe. It's the bottom line of everything that the famous 16th century French theologian John Calvin famously talked about this whole world being a theater for God's glory. That's what we're doing here. We're a theater for God's glory. And the greatest news in the universe is that we don't have to choose between the two. We don't have to pick between God's glory and our good, between God's honor and our happiness. He tied them together. In pursuing one, we are pursuing the other. The Bible talks about how we're most fulfilled when we're honoring him. And therefore, that God urgently wants us to be fulfilled. We're most, we, we honor him when we're happy in him. So God passionately, urgently wants us to be happy in him. He wants us to pursue our own happiness and fulfillment. We're, we're sinning if we don't, as long as it's happiness and fulfillment in him, which is how we'll have the most happiness and fulfillment. As, as a great contemporary theologian is famous for repeating, it's become a bit of a mantra. I'm glad it has. It's very biblical. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So he, he created us for his glory, to be walking, talking, display cases of all of his, his characters, his characteristics, his qualities. Now we're going to see shortly how God will use Lazarus' illness for his glory in this situation. The immediate question for us at this point is, so what? 
Um, God's glory is the most important thing in the universe. It's why we're here. Get that. But so what? What does that mean? And we get the answer to that by just reading on a couple of verses. So verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Jesus was ill, he, he did what? <laughs> I wonder if this was one of those surprises you noticed during the reading. So when he heard that, Jesus, uh, that Lazarus, who he loved, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. In other words, let's go to Lazarus. If you're wondering, there is nothing lost in translation there. That is saying what it seems to be saying. The Greek word for so at the beginning of verse 6 is un, which can equally be translated therefore. So it was really like you're sitting at home one afternoon. The phone goes. It's someone from Croydon University Hospital. And um, they tell you, your best friend is very, very seriously ill. If you want to see them, you're going to have to rush to their bedside right now. And your response on the phone is, okay, thanks. I, I understand that. That's nice and clear. In that case, I think I'm going to now extend my stay in this particular location by a couple of extra days. Then I'll go to them. It's like, what? What was going on there? And the answer is this. So committed is Jesus to God's glory that he's willing to endure the pain and the sorrow of staying away from a dear friend who's close to death so that when he does get there and do what he's going to do, quick spoiler, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, we'll see that next week, God will be glorified. In other words, God's power and love will be displayed. Jesus is willing to cause himself and others, Mary, Martha, who he loves as well, his disciples, very, very deep heartache, the heartache of bereavement, because he knows that more glory will go to God if he just delays a bit. He knows that Mary and Martha and the disciples are going to see something very spectacular about God if he delays a bit just to let Lazarus die temporarily. That's how committed Jesus is to God's glory. So him staying away for those extra days is a picture of his commitment to God's glory. Hence the so what to our first point, which is, am I committed to it? It's God's highest value. Is it mine? In other words, is, is 2020 for Will Dobby going to be about Will Dobby being displayed and shown off? Or is Will Dobby's life going to be about God being displayed and showed off? Is, is 2020 for Redeemer or, or for you, you know, for Gary, for David, for all of us, going to be about us showing how great we are? Or will it be about us showing how great God is? That's what being committed to God's glory looks like. And as we said earlier, it's not only the right thing to be passionately committed to God's glory, it's also the, the most self-serving thing. It's the secret to our own fulfillment. It's why God made us. So am I committed to it? One summer, when I was about 18, um, I read a biography that affected me very deeply. It's the story of this woman here, Johnny Erickson Tarder. Um, as a teenager, she was very active and sporty. The picture on the left is her before the accident. But in the summer of 1967, she was swimming in a lake with some friends. She dived in, uh, hit a rock, and she was instantly paralyzed from the neck downwards, as she still is today. And in the book, she talks about the swimming accident, what it felt like, life since. It is an absolutely gripping read. It's available on Redeemer's online bookstore. Um, but after the accident, she suffered intense depression. And in fact, when she was young, she went through several phases of begging her friends to help her commit suicide. 
And then in the midst of everything she'd lost, through a series of remarkable events, she discovered Jesus. And more recently, I came across these words that she wrote. I don't want to be a whiner. I don't want to be a complainer. But today is just one of those days because I woke up this morning with the weight of being a quadriplegic heavy on my heart. It can happen when I feel the crunch of pain from deteriorating cervical discs in my neck. But I'm not sharing this to make you feel sorry for me, no way. I'm sharing it to tell you exactly what I'm doing about my weariness and frustration with this paralysis I face every day. There's nothing I can do to reach this pain. No one can help me reach it. No amount of ibuprofen, no amount of aspirin, no amount of shifting or pushing or tightening the corset that I wear to help me breathe. When it gets like this, Jesus is all I have. But that reinforces my faith and strengthens my soul and I discover Jesus is all I need. And that is enough to carry me to the end of this day and beyond. And then here's the sentence that hit me between the eyes. This is really defiant by her. I love it. She says, I do not care if I'm confined to this wheelchair, provided from it I can bring glory to God. That's how committed she is to God's glory. That's how committed she is to her own happiness and fulfillment and survival in this world. Will that be us this year? Are we, are we going to be cultivating the, the delicate art of not caring about our circumstances on the condition that, from them, how we deal with them will bring glory to God. Well, the next thing that happens in the story is that having waited, Jesus then does go to visit Lazarus. So have a look at the end of verse 7. End of verse 7, Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. And not only is Jesus staying away remarkable, almost more remarkable is him now going. Because what he's doing is knowingly walking into a death trap. So let's go back to my hospital example again. Um, the, the Croydon gang that operates in that part of Croydon, North Croydon, Thornton Heath, um, is called CR7. It used to be known as the Heath Set. Um, there's up to about maybe, they think, 20 members in it. Um, imagine if they had put wanted posters with your face on them around the area around Croydon University Hospital, Thornton Heath. And um, if they see you, they're going to stab you on sight. And you, so that's the situation. You get the phone call from the hospital in the middle of their turf about your friend, and you're like, okay, I'm on my way. Your other friends around you will be saying, are you sure? You're going to be killed. But that's what it's like for Jesus. And that's what his friend said. Have a look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going back there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So what on earth does that mean? We can unpack that by asking, well, who is the light of the world? And as you'll remember from earlier in the series, John chapter 8, verse 12, John recounts Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And in our passage, Jesus isn't just talking about himself when he says this. In verse 9, he says, if anyone walks, verse 10, if anyone walks, verse 9. So this is a point to us, his little speech there about why he is going to Judea to see Lazarus, even though it's a death trap, um, is an application for us. He's saying, if anyone. Here's what he's saying. If anyone walks in the light that I give, 
Anyone who lives and goes through life and makes decisions in the light of who I really am will never stumble. And so our second point is very simply about God's light. And the challenge for us from this is, am I walking by it? So the question is, am I going to walk through 2020? Are we as a church going to walk through 2020 in the light or in the night? That is the choice. Very, very simple. It's a fork in the road. We've each, we each make that choice. So we're going to go through 2020 in the light or in the night. Uh, one commentator writes this. To walk in the day means to walk in the light that Jesus gives. That's the light of the world. That is to walk in fellowship with him, believing and obeying his words. Walking in the night means to walk apart from Jesus, not believing him, not trusting him, and not obeying him. So if in 2020... I decide to take a certain path that doesn't equal fellowship with Jesus and obeying him and trusting him, but I just decide to do it anyway regarding a certain issue. The sad, scary promise from God is that I'm going to stumble. Things are not going to go well. They might seem to be going well. You know, uh, no one's getting harmed by this pornography. I'm getting pleasure from it. What's the downside? Or uh, this idolatrous workaholism is kind of working out because, well, look at my career, look at my promotion, look at my pay rise. Or this tendency to gossip may not be ideal, but to be honest, it's, I think it's worth it. It's so delicious and satisfying. Or going out with this non-Christian may go against the Bible, but surely God wants me to be happy. And anyway, hopefully he'll be converted. Walking in the night might seem to go well, not going by Jesus, not having fellowship with him, having a clear conscience, obeying him. It might seem to go well even for a long time. God's promise is that those who walk in the night, who decide to, will stumble. That's what Jesus says. It's never worth it. And if, in fact, ultimately, walking in the night is done unrepentantly, that would give away I'm not even saved. That's just what Jesus is saying. It's what he heavily implies at the end of verse 10. He says, the light is not in him. The light of Jesus is not in you. The light of the world is not in him. Whereas those who don't walk by the night but walk by the light, who go God's way, like Jesus was, by going to Judah, uh, Judea to see Lazarus, by going to the lion's den, will never stumble. That doesn't mean bad things will never happen to them. They might even die like he did, but they won't stumble. In other words, they will not put themselves outside of God's approval and, and protection and comfort and love and ultimate vindication and healing in the world to come. So what would walking in the light look like for us this year? What would walking in the night look like for you this year? Uh, we all have signature sins, we all have weaknesses, we all have specific temptations. Um, maybe there's a particular area that walking in the night would look like for any of us that the Holy Spirit would poke your conscience with if you were to listen for even just a few seconds. Let's be asking God's help to walk in the light this year, no matter what. Reading on from verse 11. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples, ever the ones to get the wrong end of any given stick, said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Death is a terrible thing, isn't it? I mean, understatement of the century. Maybe you lost a loved one this year. Um, I'll never forget being just underneath a soldier on a rooftop in Iraq, a soldier who I had posted there when he took a sniper's bullet through his head. Um, or visiting a, 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 a Dima's family member on their deathbed. Or, or sitting with the still warm body of another Dima in Croydon University Hospital. It was Michael Eldridge's anniversary uh, a week ago today, actually. I, I still think about him often. Well, this might not seem like much um, to some, but, but two Sundays ago, um, when I was here in church, our dog, Oscar, was sitting in the car. And the reason he was there is that after church, I had to take him to be put down. And he'd been a family member for nearly 10 years, totally broke our hearts. My nine-year-old still cries about it. Um, even when it's a dog, let alone a human, death is horrific, isn't it? And each of us will have our own bereavement stories. And each of us will have felt the surreal, crushing, aching finality of it. But to Jesus, he knows that when Lazarus dies, to him, verse 11, it's just asleep. He, can just, he knows he can wake Lazarus up. It's not final. And we're going to see Jesus do that in next week's passage. And one day we'll see him do that to ourselves if we keep walking in the light as opposed to the night. And so the French poet Victor Hugo wrote these words. When I go down to the grave, I can say like so many others that I have finished my day's work. But I cannot say that I have finished my life. Another day's work will begin the next morning. The tomb is not a dead end. It's a thoroughfare. It closes with the twilight to open with the dawn. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? For the Christian, the tomb closes with the twilight, yes, but to open with the dawn. So more on that next week. That leaves us with the final point of this passage, which is about God's Son, Jesus. We thought about God's glory, am I committed to it? God's light, am I walking by it? We cannot close without focusing for a moment now on God's Son, and in particular, the question, am I devoted to him? And, and that's a make or break for 2020, for this church and for us as individuals. That's the final thing this passage is highlighting. Because first of all, let's just run over very briefly now what we've seen of Jesus in these verses. He's personal and tender and loving, verse 3, also verse 5. He's worthy of divine glory himself. Hope you noticed that, end of verse 4. That the Son of God may be glorified. Um, he's utterly, radically committed to God's glory. End of verse. Uh, first, sorry, first by staying away and letting Lazarus die, and then even more so by going, putting his, his head in the lion's mouth. And he's got power over the death of believers. To him, when they die, it's nothing but a sleep from which he can. He knows he can waken them. So here's the practical take-home for us from all of the above, the all of the above things about Jesus. He's worthy of our devotion. And John very cleverly, deliberately tops and tails this passage with two examples of that for us to follow. Now the first, the one at the top of the passage, is the one I mentioned briefly at the very beginning um, in verse 2. That is what John was doing with this weirdly belabored roundabout um, identification of who Lazarus was, the brother of a woman who, quote, anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. 
Now that is, hasn't even happened yet in this gospel. That makes it even weirder for John to use as a way for us to know who Lazarus is. We're not going to read about that till next chapter, chapter 12. But without too many spoilers at this point, suffice it to say that when we learn about that in a few weeks' time, chapter 12, when Lazarus's sister put ointment on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair, with that instance described in great detail, it is the most wildly extravagant, uh, shocking, overflowing, scandalous, intense, not caring about what anyone would have thought of her for doing it, act of devotion. That's the, the top of the passage, verse 2. Now skim on down to the tail of the passage, verse 16. Same, uh, another example of exactly the same principle, devotion to Jesus. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, Didymus, literally, um, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. And yes, we again have the disciples getting the wrong end of the stick, according to their form. Thomas thinks that when Jesus says, let's go to Lazarus, Jesus means he's going to die as well so he can be with his friend. No, Thomas, Christianity is not some kind of weird suicide cult. But even though Thomas has misunderstood Jesus, his words are still a brilliant picture, deliberately given to us for what devotion to Jesus looks like. It means going with Jesus, even at the cost of death. And is that us? In 2020, are we going to be resolved to go with Jesus, no matter what the cost, up to and including death? As Jesus himself puts this, not me sort of extrapolating, this is just very explicit multiple times from Jesus' own lips. For example, Mark 8, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. In other words, be willing to die and follow me. And following Jesus this year, not to put anyone off, be a downer, I'm afraid will involve your death. Now, probably not your physical, literal death at this point in, in this particular country, um, which isn't the case for millions of our brothers and sisters around the world and down history, but still death, nonetheless for us, in maybe a hundred smaller, but still painful ways. For example, financial mini-death, as I'm faithfully um, laying down my finances for Jesus, whether it's giving just 10% of my income, as per the Old Testament paradigm, or more than that, as per the Bible's implications for us New Testament believers with all our extra privilege, that's going to hurt. It might mean a less nice holiday this year, or less shopping, or, or less traveling, or less expensive clothes. That's one big thing the Bible says devotion to Jesus looks like. That's a kind of a death for us. Another example might be a relational mini-death. As I witness to parents or friends or colleagues about Jesus, even though that might cause awkwardness or offend people or make me laugh at. Another example might be a mini death for my comfort. As I go to bed earlier than I'd naturally want to in the evening, I forego a bit of entertainment so I can get up earlier and start each day with a life-changing discipline of time and God's word and prayer. Whatever it looks like, the principle is the one Jesus himself says in Mark 8, which Thomas gives us in verse 16 here, devotion to Jesus to the point of death. And as I close, here's the thing. That is the only kind of devotion to Jesus there is. If anyone would come up to me, would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But here's the other thing, it is always worth it. And it leads to our own fulfillment and satisfaction. And in any case, remember, Jesus can raise the dead. Our death is nothing but a sleep to him. 
And so let me just close with this final application. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see a slip of paper. It might either be sticking out, you might already see it, or it might be in the inside back cover. Um, take out that piece of paper. That's the application. Today on the start line of 2020, we're calling this the 20 challenge. And this isn't even people actually coming. This is only just people you invite to come. Could be a friend at school, could be uh, a teacher, could be a neighbor, could be someone you get chatting to on the tram or the bus, could be your postman, could be the person at your supermarket checkout. And if you were to invite 20 people this year to come and encounter Jesus at Redeemer, that works out at one person per fortnight with a few weeks off for when you're away on holiday or something. Two people a month, minus a few. Guys, that is so doable. So please take the piece of paper away with you. I hope it's useful. Let's have an amazing year of being committed to God's glory, walking by his light, and being truly devoted to his son. And it'll be a year to change our lives forever if we do. Let me invite the band up. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he is so worth it. Lord, thank you for his love and his compassion and his power. Thank you that he's worthy of divine glory, as he says. Thank you he was so committed to your glory, setting us such an example. Lord, thank you that he is the light of the world. Thank you that we get to walk by him, by the light, instead of by the night, which will be fatal which will stumble. So Lord, please help us to be committed to your glory this year as a church, as individuals. Help us to walk by your light. Lord, Lord protect us and help us when we're tempted in, in different little areas to, to walk by the night instead of by the light. And please help us to be truly devoted to your son. Lord, help us to, to be like Lazarus' sister at the beginning of the passage. Radical, intense, extravagant, over the top, don't care what anyone thinks, devotion to Jesus. Help us to be like Thomas at the end of the passage, ready and willing to die for him. And Lord, we ask all of this for our own ultimate happiness and fulfillment. Thank you that if and when we do die, if your son hasn't already returned, for believers, our death is just like a sleep to Jesus. He'll, he'll wake us up to a reality that will make us realize all of the, the many deaths were so much more than worth it. Lord, do these things in our hearts and in this church this year. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.